Okay. Well, we've reached the sixth and final petition of the, the Lord's Prayer this evening. So just by way of reminder, some of the things that our Savior has already taught us to ask of our Lord God when we go to Him in prayer, uh, that we are to ask for His name to be honored and exalted in our lives and in the world that we live in. We are to secondly ask that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Thirdly, uh, we are to request that his will be done in our lives and through his people. We desire his will and we have come to trust his will even better than our own will. And so we are to ask for his will to be done. Fourthly, we want God to provide our daily bread for us, which is uh, in, in a way asking for him to meet our needs. God knows the things that we need, whether that is shelter or food or clothing. Um, but we are to daily look to him for his provision and know that what we need that we have comes from his generous and mighty hand. And then fifthly, we want God to forgive our sin and to make us forgivers of others as we reflect on the fact that he has shown us great mercy and has been a blessing to us in releasing us from the burden of sin um, in a way that we could have never released ourselves. And so praise be to God for that wonderful victory. The... Uh, Sixth petition, which we are going to be looking at tonight, the answer to the question of what we pray for in the sixth petition is, in the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin, or that he would support and deliver us when we are tempted. And so, temptation is nothing more than the opportunity to sin, that must be either accepted or rejected. And as human beings, we have, we have many, many times, unfortunately, accepted the temptation, that offer of, of sin that is given to us daily from the, the world and from the flesh and from our enemy, Satan. Uh, praise be to God that we have a Savior who has, while being tempted in all the ways that we have been tempted, has triumphed in rejecting those temptations to sin and has not had a desire to do what those who follow after Christ should have no desire to do. And so in Matthew 6, 13, um, we are told uh, by our Savior that we are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of my uh, very favorite songs to sing to the Lord in worship is a song by a band named King's Kaleidoscope, and it's called Defender. And I really enjoy this song for a number of me, uh, reasons. It's got a rousing mixture of percussion and exciting wind instruments mixed with a driving guitar. But much more important to me than the sound of the song, which is definitely capable of stirring the heart, is the lyrics, which give me such great comfort and remind me of the protection that we have in our Savior. And so here's just one stanza of the song. Uh, the, the lyrics sing... He brought me to a safer place, equipped my hands and feet with strength, so I advance with confidence in Christ. His precious truth delivers me from lies that wage a war in me. Your victory is mine for all my days. I will not be afraid, for my hope is in his name. Who is a rock but our God, whose blood has sealed our freedom, Jesus our Savior, Defender, Redeemer. And so here in this song, I, I love to sing this song when I am shaken, when I am doubtful of my future, when I am stricken with temptations and struggling with sins that have beset me. 
because I am reminded in the lyrics of this song that I have a defender, that my battle against sin is not a, f- a battle that I fight by myself. God has given me a strength beyond my own. He has given me a champion that fights in my place. And so if nothing else, this sixth petition, this part of the Lord's model prayer should teach us one, that we need defense. We need protection. And then two, that that defense must come from our God, particularly from Jesus, who is our Savior and our Shepherd. If we've been lulled into thinking of Christianity as some kind of carefree, spiritually safe exercise where there are no real threats to our well-being and any serious opposition has all been cleared away for us, then this portion of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that a, a Christianity like that is a concept very foreign to the pages of Scripture. When we read about what the life of a Christian is going to be like, we are warned that it's going to be beset by struggles, by challenges, and yes, by temptations as we continue to dwell in a world that has yet to see the stain of sin erased from it. Following Jesus Christ is extremely dangerous. And while salvation grants us with a kind of inner peace that Scripture tells us surpasses understanding, that doesn't mean that the life of the believer won't be marked with many dangers, toils, and snares. And so uh, as we think about this portion of the Lord's Prayer, I I think it would be helpful uh, to turn our attention briefly to the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, where in the fifth chapter and the fifth portion of that chapter, Uh, The writers wrote the following to encourage our hearts as we try to understand temptation. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own heart. He does so for a number of reasons. It says, To chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, and that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. And so as we try to wrap our minds around the idea of temptation and the role that it plays in our lives, we must come to terms with the fact that temptation is not a force that somehow threatens us from beyond the scope of God's sovereign decree. People sometimes make the mistake of thinking wrongly of temptation as the rogue work of the enemy as if God is doing his will, continuing in our lives, but he has to stop from time to time because there's this pesky fly, this Satan who is buzzing around and sometimes tries to threaten to get himself into the ointment. But in reality, temptation is one of a myriad of ways that God has chosen to not only reveal himself to us, but also to expose us for the weak creation that we are. Satan never creates temptation apart from the will of God. God has used even Satan and his desire to make us stumble in such a way that he can, he can cause it to strengthen the faith and the dependence of his saved people. So now to be very certain up front, God himself 
does not tempt his people. James 1, 13 through 15 really leaves no room for doubt in this regard. The Apostle James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here, Brother James tells us that God does not generate evil. And he does not have designs to fuel the inherent wickedness that is within us. He does not want to increase our desire for what is detestable to him. However, it is the providential will of God that while we live here on earth, we live among the very ordinary danger of temptation. That is true of the non-believer and of the believer as well. And so, Christian, you will be beset by temptation. And these temptations will come both from the outside. We are exposed to the sinfulness of others. Sometimes we do not see the full impact of that wickedness. And so we may be deceived into thinking that wicked behavior doesn't have the consequence that it truly has. It is all around us. And there will be times when we are tempted to join in on that sin or to try to use some sin of our own to try to counteract the sins of others. When someone sins against us, sometimes it is boiling up inside of us to be a vigilante and to go after them in such a way that would not be pleasing to our God. So there is sin all around us, and so many temptations will come to us from outside. But we are also tempted from within ourselves. As James spoke of here, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So even if Satan were completely taken out of the equation, that would not mean that the world would suddenly become a happy and virtuous place. For the hearts of people like us would still be free to go against the law of God. We are bearers of a sinful human nature and therefore the sin that we are exposed to will at time be attractive to us. The Apostle Paul speaks of an inward struggle that Christians should all be able to really identify with. In chapter 7 of Romans, verses 21 through 25, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And I I love the way that he phrases that really because it it, it makes a lot of sense and it shows that the, the human who cares to do the will of God needs to be vigilant and needs to keep an eye out because There is this desire to do evil within us that can be pushed down, that can be tamed at times with the help of the Spirit, but that is there ready to trip us up if we do not give it the respect it deserves. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now I don't think in verse 25 there that that Paul means that 
that he wants to do what is good, but his body just runs off and do what is, does what is wicked all the time. But he is speaking about this conflict and this tension that every believer needs to contend with. That while we have been shown what is good, there is still something in our body, a momentum of sin that comes from our sin nature that God has defeated that still causes us to want to sometimes wander back into the sinful lust of the flesh that used to do Jesus such great dishonor. So it may even be said that in an indirect way, God does put temptation in front of us as a means to expose or to strengthen us. We see that in Genesis 22, in chapters uh, 22, verses 1 through 2, where after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And for anybody who's been exposed very much to scripture, you know that this is speaking of this very interesting and, and, and difficult story in Genesis 22, where God, having promised that a great and mighty nation would come from the loins of Abraham and his wife Sarah, though they were very advanced in age and were past childbearing time, God had promised that they would indeed bear a son, and from that son a great nation of believers would come. Once that son was born unto Abraham and Sarah, they had great cause for rejoicing. They loved this son and cherished him as a son of promise. Uh, they were not neglectful in the way they raised him up. And yet, even before that son was of age where he could begin to bear other sons and continue this promise that had been laid out for Abraham and Sarah, God told Abraham to go and offer him up as a sacrifice. And so, in a sense here, there is a test. What needs to be exposed is a truth. Abraham, do you love me because I gave you Isaac? Or do you love me because I am God? What causes you to truly be devoted to me? And God puts forth a scenario which allows that truth to come to the surface. Abraham shows through his willingness to obey even a shocking command such as that, that he knows that God is good and that he wouldn't even have this son if it wasn't for God. So his first love is truly Yahweh, the one who gave promise. And we see that Abraham truly understood that his first love needed to be the Lord God because in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we're told that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the writer of Hebrews reveals a little bit about the heart of Abraham that is not explicitly said in the Genesis 22 account, but which scripture does not neglect to reveal to us his people. And this brings about a, a, a pretty interesting um, challenge with the Greek word that is used to speak of temptation in the New Testament. This word is pyrosmon, and pyrosmon can be translated faithfully in two importantly different ways. The same word is used to describe temptation. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he was using this pyrosmon concept 
to try to get Jesus to stumble. But the word that can be defined as tempt, in other words, to be drawn into sin, to be intensed into law-breaking, can also be defined or translated as to test, to test. Temptation is different than testing. Testing can be defined as exposure to circumstances designed designed to reveal what is hidden in the heart. That is how God tests us. Exposure to circumstances designed to reveal what is hidden in the heart. And so addressing this idea of testing versus tempting, particularly as it plays out in the sixth petition, Thomas Watson, a great Puritan writer, says, the meaning is that God would not suffer us to be overcome by temptation, that we may not be given up to the power of temptation and to be drawn into sin. God in no way tempts us. But the very nature of the sixth petition reminds us that temptation will come because we're also praying that God would deliver us from evil. So that acknowledges that we cannot live a temptation-free life here on earth. We're even told in 1 Peter 1 that at times it is necessary for us to endure the temptations of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil in order for God's will to come to pass. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter says that there are times that it is necessary for us to endure various trials that grieve us. And those trials will often include the temptation of sin. Just as it was God's will that Jesus be sent out into the wilderness to endure temptation, as Matthew 4.1 tells us, it is God's will that every believer will experience something of the same. There must therefore be a benefit to temptation met and temptation withstood that brings God glory and blesses his beloved. And the benefits that come from these temptations must somehow exceed even the comforts of never having to contend with temptation at all in the first place. There was a a writer in the Renaissance named Thomas More who wrote an interesting um, parody story called Utopia. And it was a story in which the owners of an island decided to make a perfect society and to strive to build a land with flawless laws, a land where all temptation could be ridded from the land and only virtue would, would exist. And it's, it's kind of a train wreck. If you read this short story, which is a quite, quite well written, Utopia ends up being a place where uh, those who live with these lofty ideals are just taken advantage of by other nations that don't find it wrong to lie or to deceive or to attack and do violence to others. And so Thomas More's idea of creating just a perfect environment where you'll never experience temptation ended up producing a bunch of weak citizens. It didn't do what they expected it to do. If God is desiring for his people to have to endure through temptations, then there's something good that comes from it. And so rather than run, we should ask the Lord God to be merciful to us in the degree to which he exposes us to these temptations 
And when these temptations come, that he might strengthen us to bear up under them with his power. So what are some ways that God may expose his own people to temptation? We have a couple of interesting examples scripturally. God may expose his own to temptation by removing his assisting grace. We see this in the example of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32, 31. It says, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. God left him to himself. In other words, Hezekiah, a king who had been largely faithful to the Lord God, who had depended upon God, in this instance, God withdrew his protecting power on King Hezekiah for a moment. And there was a reason for that. It was not so that Hezekiah would fall into a temptation, but it was that a sin that existed within the heart of Hezekiah might be revealed by the circumstances that God allowed him to go through. This envoy from Babylon came, and because of his pride, Hezekiah, of his own accord, decided to show all the riches and the beauty of Jerusalem and Judah to this envoy from Babylon, which turns out to be a really big mistake, because only a couple of generations later, who is the nation that comes to Judah to conquer and to strip mine? that nation of its resources. It's this Babylon who sets as a goal to gain for themselves what God had blessed Hezekiah with. And so the pride of Hezekiah is exposed in that moment as God has removed his, existing, his assisting grace for a time from his servant to expose a sin that needed to be dealt with. Now, this is very different from leaving or forsaking. God will never leave or forsake us. He remains watchful. He guides the situation, but his prominent grace has been restrained at times so as to expose us to how different the battle would be had we turned away from God and attempted to be strength unto ourselves rather than dwelling with him and abiding in his strength and his provision. So God may expose his own to temptation by removing his assisting grace. And that usually happens in conjunction to our neglect of him. A second way that we might see this come to pass. God may expose his own to temptation by releasing their spiritual enemies whom he had formerly withheld from them. Now, I've spoken recently about the immeasurable gift of God's restraining grace upon the world. Things are not nearly as bad as they could be in this earth because God puts a conscience, albeit a primitive conscience, even to the heart of non-believers. And I know that we live in an area where maybe that conscience isn't as effective as in other areas. There's quite a lot of crime around here. But we have no idea how bad society would be if God were not constantly restraining the wicked inclinations of the heart of man. If he was not using the sword of the governments that he had placed in position over us to enact godly and righteous laws, uh, then this world would be a, a blazing dumpster fire of sin. This restraint is happening on a spiritual warfare level as well. Not only is he keeping people from exercising physical sin, but he is also holding back the spiritual forces of darkness that want to destroy us. In 1 Kings 22, verses 19 through 23, we read, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. 
I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall, you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So there was a, a moment in which Ahab was already a sinful and wicked man who did not care for the things of the Lord and had not responded to the blessing of being king over the northern kingdom with reverence and honor to God, but instead had allowed his wicked wife Jezebel to foster the development of Baal worship and other false cultish activity in the land of the northern kingdom. God, for this reason, released wicked spirits that were happy to do destructive things to Ahab by way of lying to him through the mouths of his own false prophets. And so there are times when uh, the people of God are not obedient to the Lord God that he might not restrain a demonic force that would otherwise have been held back by his protective hand. This is part of the reason why we need to ask for the Lord's defense and trust that he can overcome our enemies, whether we can see them or not. In light of the potential dangers that we are exposed to in this world stained by sin, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer is essentially showing us that it is good and acceptable to pray that God will defend us from, from temptation. We should pray that we may not have to experience the trial at all, confessing our weakness to him, knowing that apart from his strength, we have no hope to overcome the trial of temptation. Before Christ came into our lives, we could only ever sin. Even the things that we did that seemed good were done with no respect to the God who, who is, is good and worthy of praise. And so our, our good deeds were wretched before him. So we should pray that we may, when faced with trial and temptation, stand firm and triumph over the one that would cause us to stumble. We should pray that in those times when we do fail, that we might not blame our protector God for our failure, but would rather thank him for exposing in us something that needs to be dealt with. And thank him for the willingness to forgive us and to help us to become stronger through his word so that we would be less vulnerable in the future to those kinds of temptations. When trying to understand the role that temptation is allowed to play in our discipleship training, we've got to remember continually the fundamental nature of who our God is. We must remember that our God is a sovereign God. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So there is, there is no temptation that will come to us that God has not allowed. Even the serpent in the original sin in the garden did not sneak past the defenses of Yahweh to enter in and to whisper the things that he did deceitfully to Eve and to Adam. Jeremiah thirty two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The sovereignty of God reminds us that there is no temptation that comes to us that he has not allowed, but it also reminds us that there is no temptation that has come to us that he cannot overcome for us. 
So God is a sovereign God, and he's in control even of the temptations that we face. Secondly, we need to remember the character of God that he is, he is a perfect father to those who are his children. And by those who are his children, I, I mean those who are a part of his elect, those who have been called forward to have faith in the Lord God. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And if we are children of God, if he is a father to us, we have to believe that he is an excellent father, that he is a father of the utmost quality and perfection. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Therefore, God will not allow temptation to take more from us than he can restore. Nor should we see temptation as an evil that God may not see coming. What does it mean that God is a good shepherd? It means that the beast ultimately threatens the life and well-being of the flock, but will not be allowed to feast upon these sheep, for they belong to him, and he will keep them safe. 2 Timothy 4, 17-18 says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. This is Paul speaking to the Apostle Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy, encouraging him that though he had experienced much affliction and trial and hardship, that the Lord was faithful to him through it all. He says, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the God to whom we appeal, friends, when we are praising the Lord for his goodness and also asking him in this sixth petition that he would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are asking that he would deliver us from the mouth of the lion as he delivered the apostle Paul so many times from the clutches of the one who would destroy him. At the same time, we must never forget to follow Jesus is to agree to be engaged in constant spiritual warfare against a formidable enemy whose tactics are not fair or honest. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It goes on to instruct us on how we're to deal with this lion. Be aware of him, but also resist him. Stand against his schemes. Endure to the end. And with the strength that God provides, we can do exactly that. Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down upon it. And so we're reminded here in Job 1, that the enemy who hates the Lord God but can do him no harm and so would try to come after those who are precious to God and bear his image, the enemy has a degree of freedom, that he does have the bandwidth to go to and fro upon the earth. That doesn't mean he's constantly in your head. That doesn't mean he knows all that you are thinking as the Father knows all that you're thinking. That doesn't know that every time that you have sin put before you, that it is the very hand of Satan that has laid it out for you as a trap. But we do have this formidable enemy. And this enemy has a degree of latitude by which he might, along with his minions, enhance the temptation for us to fall into sin and break God's law. We must be aware of these things, Christian. 
We've got to be praying that the Lord would strengthen us for this battle and would give us what we need so that we might overcome and have the victory. In Revelation 2.24, it says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, a false teaching that he just decried in that church, he said, Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So we're given a little peek here at the fact that some of Satan's tactics against us are very deep. They are hidden and mysterious. And so we've got to be vigilant. We cannot take lightly the attacks of the enemy. We can't think of him as a foe who deserves no respect. We must recognize that there is a degree of power that he has been given and that that power can easily sting us if we are not trusting in our Lord God. Temptation will abound as a Christian, but take heart. Our victory will not be contingent on how intense the temptation is. Let me say that again. Our victory will not be contingent on how intense the temptation is. In other words, we cannot make the excuse that our temptation was just too much for us to bear and that we had no power to endure it. Of course I fell. Do you see what I went through? Do you see how hard it was to say no to that sin? The scripture does not give us the freedom to blame the temptation on our failure, to blame our failure on the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, church, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so let's unpack 1 Corinthians 10, 13 a little bit here. We ought not think of whatever temptation God allows us to experience, that there might be some unique situation that's so overwhelming that we cannot be expected to deal with it. God has equipped us with every spiritual defense that we need to face up against any temptation that comes our way. Philippians 4.13 reminds us that we can do all things in Christ. It's teaching us to be content in that passage. But think about what all things means. All things includes standing in the day of temptation. Our strength is to come from Him. So God is a faithful God, we read here. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And the implication is this. Even when He allows us to be tempted or to suffer the allurements of the enemy, that doesn't mean he's not faithful to us. He remains faithful to his people. This test that we are experiencing is a way for us to, sh- to see more clearly how much we need our Savior and to stand right by his side, trusting in him as we resist. There are limits to the degree of temptation that God allows a believer to endure. And this is different than how this verse is so frequently misquoted. You have often heard this verse spring from the lips of people saying, God will never give you more than you can handle. Now that's slightly different than God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure. God often gives us more than we can handle so that we will continually return to him for the strength and the help and the wisdom to handle it. If you've ever tried to handle a difficult temptation or trial on your own without God's help, you know how futile that exercise is. 
But what God is speaking about specifically here in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is temptation itself. He's not going to put so much temptation on you that there was no way that you could overcome it. So with whatever temptation God has allowed us to be exposed to as believers, there will always be a pathway to avoid or to endure that temptation while still remaining faithful to the Lord God. Pray for that pathway. Pray that God would make it clear how you are to walk in the face of temptations. Pray the steps that you're to take in order to guard yourself from the temptations that are particularly uh, tempting to your heart. Who provides the way out of sin? God himself does. He is the one who makes us able to endure the schemes of our enemy. And victory does not always appear to be victory at first glance, friends. A great many of the saints who wrote the scriptures that we are reading that instruct us in how to best understand temptation and to gird up our loins against temptation are men who were themselves tempted to turn away from their faith at the threat of persecution or execution and yet stood firm in their confessions and were subsequently executed or tortured for doing so. We have read from the Apostle Paul tonight and we know that the Apostle Paul was executed by the Roman government, likely by beheading for refusing to stay silent regarding this gospel which he was compelled to preach and preach and preach. Peter, likely crucified upside down. Why? Because of his devotion to Jesus. Timothy, at about 80 years old, was preaching against a parade exalting the Greek goddess Diana in Ephesus, the town where he faithfully served as an elder. And the mob did not like hearing this opposition. And so historical tradition says that the crowd either clubbed him to death or stoned him to death in that moment. God gave him many years to minister, and he did a faithful job in that. And yet, rather than turn away from the truth, this man, Timothy, spoke into a crowd of sinners the difference between faithfulness and disobedience and showed them their rebellious hearts, and he was clubbed to death for it. John, the beloved apostle, was afflicted by boiling in oil. Later, he was put on a, an island and exposed to the elements. In a way, John endured many deaths, and yet he was not killed by any of them. He suffered faithfully. Every time the Lord caused him to be captured or put behind bars, he continued to strive with the Lord. And so you might look at the stories of these individuals who were either hurt badly or killed for what they believed. And you might say that doesn't look like victory on the outside. It might not seem to be victory, but yes, the stories and the testimonies of these men are incredibly victorious. For these brothers have stayed the course. They have followed the example of their Savior. They prayed for God to help them overcome, and overcome they have. There's this scene in Revelation 6 that some of our young people might be familiar with. Uh, it has to do with the, uh, the seven seals uh, that were opened. This is the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so the shedding of the blood of the saints is not yet finished, friends. There are more who will die because of the testimony that they hold true to. I don't think it'll be any of us in this room, but I can't tell you with any kind of certainty. What I can tell you is that we will all be tempted in some way or another to turn away from the good confession of faith that we're called to hold fast to. And so let us be quick to pray that God would not lead us into temptation, but that when that temptation would come, that he would deliver us from the evil of it. Even if God deems it best to allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and be exposed to the potential dangers of temptation, he does not neglect to supply us with training and defensive tools that guard the hearts of those who have listened to his instruction and depend upon his name. His name. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, But with the temptation, God will also provide what? The way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So there is always a pathway that has been provided that we should seek to identify and to follow. Sometimes our sin, especially the kind that finds its root inside of ourselves, is the thing that we're sinfully wanting more than the will of God. And so we see the path that God has laid out for us for escape, and yet we stubbornly refuse to follow it, or we act as if we did not see it at all. But the promise of the word tells us that the way out will always be there. Let us not be unfaithful in ignorance, but let us look for the means that God has provided for his children. And speaking more of the strength that God gives us to prevail against these tempters, Ephesians 6.11 says that we are to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And interestingly enough, these tools work, against this, work really well against the schemes of our old crooked hearts as well. <laughs> They're not just effective at stopping that temptation that is outside of us, but they also work really well at taming our own hearts. We're told to wear the belt of truth, which reminds us that the word of God, which declares his truth to us, is so useful for combating the deceit that often tries to trick us into sinful habits and behaviors. So wear the belt, play to, uh, the belt of truth. Read the scripture of God. Seek to know the difference between right and wrong as he has declared it, not as your heart feels it. Secondly, we're told to don the breastplate of righteousness, uh, which indicates to us that our love for holiness protects our hearts from the evil desires that are offered to us from the outside. The more that we are mortifying the flesh and the more vivification we experience as we come to love the Lord's ways and, and are grateful for the good things that he teaches us, the more our heart will be guarded against uh, the pitfalls of the things that this world likes to love. We are told to put the shoes of the gospel of peace upon our feet. And those shoes protect our steps. They enable us to walk forward unhindered by pitfalls or obstacles that might try to slow us down or get us off the path that God has laid out for us. And then we wield, of course, the shield of faith, which extinguishes the fiery darts of our enemy, likely to be seen as the very kinds of temptations and lies that we have prayed God will spare us from here. Here we see our faith and that it has the power to render those temptations as powerless over us.
Next, we put on the helmet of salvation, brothers and sisters. The helmet of salvation guards our mind in the knowledge that Christ's victory is the only one that we need. For if it were not for the perfect works of Jesus, we would have no salvation at all. When we begin to think that our salvation is of our own work, our minds are exposed to the deceitfulness of our enemy. And we tend to root our strength and our hope in ourselves, which is no foundation whatsoever. But when the helmet of salvation is firmly placed upon our head, when we are thinking of our victory as Christ's victory, uh, then we are much more secure. The sword of the Spirit is the next implement that God has given to us. It is also the Word of God, and it cuts through the confusion and gets to the heart of every matter. And by it, we knock down the paper-thin arguments of our own heart when it tries to deceive us and get us to believe that what is wicked is actually good. It helps us to cut through the dross of the world around us that wants to offer us cheap entertainment that in no way rivals the beautiful, beautiful gifts that God wants to give us that last for an eternity. And then finally, there is one more tool which is often overlooked, but it is prevalent in that passage in Ephesians 6, and it is the tool of prayer, that we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all supplication, remembering where our resources and our strength originate. They originate in our Savior, the Son of God. Which brings us back to the Lord's model prayer where we are told, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is perfectly okay, friends, for us to request that God not allow us to be exposed to temptation in the first place. You have permission to ask him to spare you from the fiercest heat of the battle. And you might actually go to the Lord God in prayer and say, Father, I've been so weak lately, God. Please keep me away from lying tongues. Don't let me hear those who would try to convince me that the thing that I want to do is okay when I know, according to your word, that it's not okay. Lord God, don't bring me into a place where there's going to be visual things that cause me to lust, that cause me to have greed or to, to be proud of myself. Lord God, keep me away uh, from any kind of a victory that's going to make me trust myself rather than you. These are the kinds of prayers that fall into this category of the sixth petition, praying that God would keep us away from that temptation that might trip us up. But temptation will be there whether we are led to it or not. Remember, not all temptation is outside of us. Some of it dwells within. And where can we go away from our own spirit? So remember James 1, when man is led astray by his own desires, that's when temptation can breed into sin. So along with prayers for calm sailing, there should also be prayers that when the sea gets rough, that God will hold the vessel together. Deliver us from evil, O Lord. Pray also then for the help that we will need to triumph over the one who would hurt us. How can we expect God to deliver, to deliver us from evil? What form might that take? Well, he might remove us from the temptation. Remember what Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. And there are times when God will give us a clear path out of a place where we often have temptations. It might be that you're at a workplace that's very caustic and there's a lot of sin going on there. Pray that the Lord would open up a door and give you a, a way to work somewhere where you don't have to be constantly surrounded by that difficult temptation to speak in filthy ways or to joke in filthy ways or to do things that burden your conscience. 
He may vanquish our foe right before our eyes. When we pray that God gives us strength to overcome temptation, he might absolutely eradicate that temptation. He might give us no desire for for a sin at all. He might give us the strength to hate what we formerly loved. He might eradicate even that desire of the flesh. He can do that, Christian. The Lord can re-engineer your heart and your mind so that the thing you thought before that you would never get rid of might be something that becomes like poison to you, that you have no desire for you, that becomes disgusting. Pray that he will do that for you. He may fill us with the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance in such a way that we find ourselves fully equipped to speak out against the temptation that allures us and exposes it in those who would like to make us stumble. When we expose the lie for what it is, we protect not only our own soul from the temptation of sin, but we also help all those who see that declaration of truth to understand the dangers themselves and perhaps live to avoid that trap as well. He assures us the victory ultimately, uh, of the victory ultimately by defeating sin and death in such a way that all of our sins and iniquity is canceled out and every temptation that comes against us is rendered impotent to truly kill us. And so as you pray, deliver us from evil. Remember that he has delivered us from evil, that the the one that acts as our mediator, who hears every prayer and delivers them to the Father, that Jesus himself has suffered in our place, that whatever temptation we have fallen into has been canceled out. It no longer has the power to plunge you into hell, for Christ has paid for it in full. I want to close by uh, reading to you a particular prayer. This is just an example of how you might pray. It's from the Valley of Vision, which is a small um, compilation of some beautiful prayers that Puritan writers um, have written over the the years. And so this one is called God All-Sufficient. O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful, but I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall, but on the beloved's arm, I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shall shame thy name. But if enlightened, guided, guided and upheld by thy spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel my son to warm, to enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. So that is the conclusion of the sixth petition. Let's pray and then we'll open up for questions and answers. Gracious God, I can't.
can't help but confess my weakness in sin and ask that you would continue to overcome my lack of strength, God. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here as well, Lord, we come to you ashamed that we still struggle with sin, but Father, knowing full well that all of our brothers and sisters who preceded us with one exception have struggled with the same. And so God, let us know the power that is ours when we trust in Christ. Help us to see the victory of the empty tomb and let us know that every provision that your good soldier needs to win the battle, Lord, has been provided to us. We pray that you would not let us forget that the Spirit of God is not just something that lives in the holiest of holies anymore, a place that we can travel to, but instead it dwells within each and every believer as a sealing guarantee, as a source of strength, Lord God, as the power we need to overcome the sin that used to reign over us. And so, God, let us live out the victory that you have won. And, Father, may you receive every, every bit of glory that is, is earned by it. You are holy and good. We love you, and we thank you for your grace and ask that you would take away our fears as you stand victorious in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we have any questions about lead us not into temptation? Oh, you can say lots. If there were things that you prepped that I didn't get a chance to get to, then yeah, no, feel free I, to open up. I think I could just hear like you leading from, uh, from a shepherd's perspective on how we should see sin, and I thought it was really encouraging too because I think a lot of times when we're beaten down by our sins. We don't see God's hand and God's sovereign purposes, right? We just think I failed again. You know, this is it. Like, we don't really see the goodness of God in our own, you know, God not crushing us and God not <clears throat> just doing away with us and not chastising us even to death. I think a lot of times we forget a lot of the things about God and his goodness and why he in his sovereign decree like when you had opened that that does involve sin and evil and I think a lot of Christians are so offended outside of the reformed circles that you listen to some of the answers that you hear on this topic it just astonishes me you know so I mean I know friends that if they heard you open like that they would just get up and walk out right away, you know, or just shut down and not listen anymore, you know, and so I guess from a theodicy perspective, when we start getting into the causation of sin, and we know God is not the actual source, like he's not the demon, he's not our flesh, he's not these different secondary causes, but when we talk about God being the cause, like when it says, lead us not into temptation, right? So I know you don't disagree. It's God the one who's doing the leading, right? Because I was thinking of, um, I think you and I had this discussion a while ago when a friend of mine at the gym, I was talking with him and he said, that's actually not what that means. When, when it says in uh, Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He said, God would never do that. And I was like, well, then what does it mean? 
well, what's the right translation? What's the right understanding? What's yeah. the right hermeneutic? So I think that it's just difficult for us to reconcile the fact that God is sovereign over all these things, and yet we ourselves are still culpable to God. It's one of those things that most of us are just going to struggle with the day we die unless we really meditate on these things, right? Yeah, I think it's useful that the distinction between the exposing power of a test compared to a temptation, which when, the Satan, when Satan tempts us, he's got a goal. And the goal is to make us break more of the Lord's law and to disgrace the good confession that we've made. Whereas when God tempts, he doesn't tempt. He's not trying to get us to break his law. He's not trying to make us stumble. He's just simply exposing what exists there already. He's giving us circumstances by which those circumstances will show whether we're struggling with something or not. And they'll, they'll expose them in such a way that we then have the opportunity now to go to him and seek him for the strength that we need and to deal with those sins. And I, I shudder to think of how many sins exist in our own people's hearts because nobody knows about them. And as long as they're not known, they're not dealt with. And so the Lord God is, is good at exposing sin. And, and it's, it's important for that sin to be exposed so that it is, it is properly handled, that it is properly cared for. And not that it's not been handled on the cross already. I hope that's not misunderstood there. But there is that chastising sense in which the Lord refines us and sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. And so as we pursue holiness, we need him to reveal and to heal and to, to cause us to be more like the Lord. Go ahead, Ross. Uh, one of the nice things of having control over the PowerPoint is to bring up the slide that I have a question on. So All right. put it there. Okay. Uh, so, you know, Carol and I have talked about this probably for 20 years and never really came to a resolution. Yeah. <clears throat> the part where uh, God does not, God, he himself tempts no one. Yes. So, from what, from what I've, I've heard tonight and from what you have shown from Scripture, perhaps I can come up with an, an understanding now that God does not commandeer a situation and um, cause direct to be the, be the first cause of circumstances that create temptation but rather he might allow the circumstances much like if, if God snuffed Satan when Satan wanted to you know go and wreak havoc and God allowed Satan to you know do his worst on on Job is something that God allowed, but all the things that happened to Job, the first cause was Satan himself, and, and God merely allowed it. So is that the proper understanding of God tempts no one, but he may allow temptation simply by allowing it, whether he allows you know evil spirits to yeah. uh, enter into a situation or whether he removes a protection and and it wouldn't necessarily be a 
<laughs> we just got Apple watched. So I think we, we probably ought to work a little bit on our, just the language that we use. Because when we, we talk about God being the first cause. That means that God is the root of all things that exist. And so there, there's a sense in which he's the first cause. Amen. But when we're talking about Satan being the direct agent, we often think about it as the second cause. So I think the terms there might be a little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it might be easier just to say that God's not the direct tempter, but he is the one who, who initiates the temptation by sending the spirit to lie. He, he's, he, he causes it to happen, but he's not the one who's guilty for it. Yeah, so uh, uh, trying to articulate this is, is, is kind of difficult. Uh, the fact that God created everything, 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 everything. Yeah. Nothing just showed up. Nothing happened from another God or anything like that. God created everything. So, you know, by virtue of that, uh, certainly he's the, the first cause of everything. But we do have a scripture that says he himself tempts no one. We do read of right. times when he tests, but as far as tempting, trying to articulate how God you know, I see it as God allows temptation, but he doesn't go around saying, I'm going to tempt you, I'm going to tempt you, I'm going to tempt you. Uh, I could see how he might test somebody, but, and I guess it's the same word, you know, the same Greek word. Yeah. But as far as tempting somebody to sin... Um, the difficulty you're going to run to, Ross, I think, is that when you start to kind of like retreat to the language of he allows it to happen. It's almost, it's almost like you're, you're not acknowledging his active participation in the whole overarching process. So he's never responsible for the dirty part that is eventually used to turn a person's eyes towards the truth. He will use agents such as this lying spirit. That's not him. He's not lying to anybody. He has not sinned himself. But he's definitely orchestrating all that. So yeah, like a conductor, it's like... I have a hard time articulating. Right. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I'm not saying that he allows it to the extent that something is like maybe a little bit beyond his control and something kind of snuck in and God had to make a quick decision. It's not like that. He, right. Again, he's the creator and... Yeah. He's, he, he, so he, he, he will use agents, mm -hmm. so to speak, yeah. but it's not going to directly, you know, say, you know, Sapphira, you, you go ahead and lie about how much you, uh, how much, and, and then my spirit's going to come in and, you know, squash you, you know. Right. Yeah, it's definitely not like so a charade. It's not like this thing where he's the actual one doing the terrible thing, but he's just blaming everybody else for it. It's not like all these people are patsies. He's simply a God who has created. Sin exists within what he has created because of the corruption of people's hearts. And he's going to use that resource if it's available at, at his fingertips. Just right. like he's, he's got this nation, Assyria, who's already a, a warring and terrible tribe. Sure. And he's going to make use of that in the creation to be the agent through which he hurts the northern kingdom 
which they have earned far worse than that. I mean, he's, the fact that he was patient with them as long as he was, was far beyond what they, they deserved. So there's nothing wrong with the Lord God simply saying, here, you get what you asked for, and I'm going to let Assyria take you out, even though you thought they were your strength, and even though you tried to make a treaty with them instead of coming to me, your God. That's the Lord actively punishing the northern kingdom, and he's using a resource that's at his fingertips because all things are at his fingertips. He's sovereign. Right. And along the lines of, of, of what uh, John was saying toward uh, you know, just a, a couple of minutes ago, it's really uh, difficult to, to it, if, it, if it weren't for Reformed theology, I think of, of, of excellent perspective from which to understand uh, scripture and recognizing just how powerful, how mighty God is, how yeah. perfect, how holy. If we're not like thinking about that all the time, all the time, all the time, and then things won't won't make sense if we spend all of our time on thinking how we, uh, you know, what what I want. Yeah. How God will be my ATM machine or whatever. Yeah. And then we see something bad happen and, and somebody should come up and say, you know, God God caused that to happen um, till the day we die. We, we'll just be so conflicted. Yeah. But the more we reckon, recognize uh, just who God is, the easier it is to recognize the truth in that and to recognize God's holiness regardless of our discomfort. Okay. Um, yeah, kind of along the lines of what John was saying. It's, yeah. it's, it's a battle, but you know, spending our days you know, building up our understanding of God will help us to endure uh, just. There was a passage you said earlier. Greg's had his hand up for a ton of time. Can I let him get on on the conversation real quick? <laughs> Fred did too, but Fred's like, I'm out of here. I can't take this much time. <laughs> Yeah, even things we struggle with in our hearts, maybe we're not fully embracing a sin, but if that struggle is there and it's not dealt with properly, it needs to be exposed. And I think the Lord is merciful in exposing David's sin there. Um, it needs to be brought out and open. And I think David is a wonderful example of how we should act towards the Lord when he allows us to be tested in such a way that our sin does bubble up to the surface. 
Because the interaction with Nathan, the prophet, after his sin with Bathsheba, I think is such an important passage of Scripture for us to understand how to interact with, with our God. In his sovereignty, God allowed David, who was riding high. He was, he was an all-star. Everybody loved David. But in the midst of all of that victory, 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 this lust in his heart needed to be revealed. And so God just so happened to let it be that this woman was bathing on a rooftop at a time when David was there. And he didn't make David lust after Bathsheba, but the circumstances were orchestrated by his hand. And so, you know, those dark notes began to enter into the symphony and everything took a turn. But to see the way that David responds to his own sin when it's exposed finally and harshly is, is a benefit to us because he rejoices even in his weakness that it was exposed. And Psalm 51 is such a treasure to the church. And so um, when we think about insight, I would just urge you to remember that insight is not a sin. It depends on how it's used. And so if God is inciting him to do something, that means he is opening up a door for him to do something that would expose what is true. There's nothing inherently wrong about numbering either. What, what is wrong about what David did? Likely an incredible amount of pride in him that wants to rejoice in what he's accomplished. And so that's being exposed, really. The numbering itself is just a vehicle to get us to the sin and help us to understand it better. Okay. I was just going to say before, uh, Ross, you had asked about James 1. Um, um, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for not, God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he himself tempt any man, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. And then it talks about it bringing forth sin, sin bringing forth death. I think if, to speak in a way you can understand, obviously, metaphysics is involved. Yeah, right? No. <laughs> He's talking about you are... He needs to turn it into numbers. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm saying, theologically speaking, I think it's talking about it in a metaphysical sense, right? Because God is not... You know, I think of Habakkuk, I always think of when I started bringing up theodicy and about, you know, the vindication of God in the presence of evil. People always go to, well, God cannot even look upon evil. I'm like, but God is the one doing the evil. And when you say that, Christians are like, oh! I'm like, well, you better believe Amos 3 out of the Bible. You better believe a lot of things in the Bible. Because in Amos 3, when it says, if the, if the trumpet is blown in the city, will people not be afraid? If there is not evil in the city, has not the Lord done it? So now we're back to the ultimate cause aspect of it. So it's not like God is the one who's, you know, the the woman who's making a husband test, where a test is going on, where he's lusting after another woman if he falls into that sin. Or a wife is tested, where she may lust after another man. Or you know, Paul and I were discussing this, and it was like, well, when Nick said, well, but not all temptation and testing is synonymous, right? They're used interchangeably, but he said that there's some things that, right, but there's some things that he may be tested with that you may not struggle with, right? It may not be a temptation for you, like where it would be for someone else, right? Mm -hmm. So I think God is super sovereign over everything. And I think that's the part that we struggle with. I agree. I agree. Because when we get into these things, it's like, we're like, well, then 
if God is the one doing it, then we want to remove our culpability. It's like in the beginning, Adam, what did you do to this woman you gave me, right? It's like, you're God. This is your fault, right? Yeah, yeah. You could have prevented this. But we forget that God crushed his own son. And yet we have the nerve to question all the things that we go through. Like what Leonard Ravenel said, why do we expect to be treated in this world better than Jesus was, right? And so I just read you these last passages and how he done. It says, uh, and this one always gets me right here. It says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, right? And then there's this other one in Jeremiah. It says, oh, Lord, I know the way a man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So when I read stuff like that, I'm like, well, wait a minute. And the last one I read is Proverbs 18, 21. This one just hits me right in the face. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. You know, and it's all throughout Proverbs 20 and 21 where it mm -hmm. talks about a man's steps are ordered are ordered of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? So there are things, obviously, that are mysterious to us about the secret, decreed plan of God that we don't understand until it comes to pass, right? But we know God is sovereignly directing all these things, and we know that whatever he does is good, and we can trust that he's got his hand in on it. That's where our faith is, comes into play, right? Because we can't see in the front view mirror the plan and the hand of God. You know, yeah. we can't even see in the rear view mirror. We have to just prayerfully pray that once it comes to pass, God will give us the faith to accept the circumstances that he brings our way, knowing that he'll work all things together for good. Yeah. And so, this is where building up our understanding of God's holiness, if we see something that just, God, did you really do that? If we don't understand God's holiness, we will just totally struggle with that type of question. But when we understand God's holiness and when we understand he knows from everlasting to everlasting, he knows the beginning to the end. Yeah. Um, that's where we can, by faith, accept in out of God's holiness. This is this is okay. Well, yeah. What do we really deserve? I mean, I look at my uncle that I used to look up to so much, and then find out that he was a serial pedophile and a rapist and an adulterer, and just like a kleptomaniac. When I look back at all that, I'm like. It's a hard pill to swallow, yeah. you know? Look at my wife's family, you know, some of her uncles, just really vile, grotesque, saying the kind of stuff you see on these um, history or the A&E channel. You know, and when you live around people like that, and you experience those kinds of really dark, deep depravity, you do start to be like, wow, God, you know, why would your hand decree such things, right? But at the end of the day, you know, why not? I'm back with R.C. Sproul used to say, he said, people are asking the wrong question. He said, I can understand a holy guy killing everybody. Right. Yeah, why does like, he spare she, any of us? Yeah, yeah. Why, why should he spare any of us from any, any of these circumstances? Amen. You know? so, Amen. It's like he didn't spare his own son. And that's, that brings me back to reality when I start, when my mind starts to wander into all of these you know, issues of sovereignty that I can't explain, you know, about yeah. the why, you know, mm -hmm. for his own glory. Amen.
the only question, that's the only answer we have, and that, that better be a sufficient one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, well, I think we're going to call that done. So uh, thank you for your feedback, and uh, may the Lord bless the rest of our night.